So I grew up in the Midlands of South Carolina. The first time I remember learning about Black History Month was in my eighth grade earth science class of all places. I'm sure I had heard about Black History Month before, but that eighth grade class was the first time that I experienced a sustained month-long focus on black history that included substantive assignments requiring us to research and present about black scientists. Part of why I didn't have a substantive experience with black history prior to eighth grade, doesn't everyone learn about black history in eighth grade or science, right? That's how, that's how it goes is uh, the truth is that I didn't have an African-American teacher prior to eighth grade. Uh, Of course, any of my white teachers could have emphasized black history in a substantive way, but the truth is that they didn't. Black History Month started in 1926 as a week-long celebration by the African-American historian Carter Woodson. It took another five decades to be officially recognized on the national level when President Gerald Ford designated a Black History Week in 1975. The next year, Ford officially expanded it to a Black History Month, calling it a moment for the public to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor in our history. Setting up systems that institutionalize the inclusion of diverse perspectives can make a difference. Of course, I'm also reminded each year of the comedian Chris Rock's line about, of course, they give black people the coldest, shortest month, right? (laughs) Nevertheless, it is important to set up these sort of systematized reminders. Uh, Indeed, even worse than the story I shared about my lack of early experiences with black teachers and Black History Month, I'm reminded from studying the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that in the early 1950s, um, so you know, Montgomery bus boycott is in 1955, but before that, King was in at Boston University getting his PhD in systematic theology. During the entirety of his doctoral studies, he never had a black instructor and he never took a course in which a book written by a black author was assigned. Not once. One of the ways that I've come to think about this dynamic is that the problem is not Black History Month or teaching a course on black history or womanist theology or LGBTQ AI ethics or Asian American literature or any other identity-centered focus. The problem is much more often the lack of transparency around courses that market themselves as merely history. Just plain theology, regular literature, but then when you look at the syllabi, often have predominantly or even exclusively white male authors. Uh, If that's the case, let's be honest and call that course what it is, rich white heterosexual male theology and rich white male heterosexual ethics, right? I've had quite a few courses that were essentially that in my life. When we aren't honest in our labels, the default tends to be that historically privileged groups become perceived as the norm, as basic, even as the real thing, right? And these other things are boutique or special or catering to um, interest groups. I should add that I'm not trying to unduly cast aspersions on professors decades in the past who have not had the, who don't have trainings that are more widely available today in anti-racism, anti-oppression, multiculturalism, intercultural competence. But in the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better 
And when you know better, what? Do better, right? One of the people helping me to know better so that I can do better is Dr. Jean Jean Theo Harris, a distinguished professor of political science at Brooklyn College. A few years ago, I shared some insights from her brilliant book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. In that book, she debunks the conventional wisdom that Parks was this quiet, humble, dignified, soft-spoken, and there were times when she was that thing, but there was much more to Parks' life. That romanticized version of her masks the fullness of her life that included nearly 70 years of activism. Moreover, her involvement in nonviolent activist training, as well as, sec- as well as her role as secretary of the local branch of the NAACP, all of that came prior to her choosing to not give up her seat on December 1st, 1955. And although uh, Parks recognized the the strategic value of nonviolence, her hero was actually more Malcolm than Martin. She loved and admired Dr. King greatly, but it was Malcolm X's boldness, his clarity, that made him her champion. Indeed, Parks' family, like many black Southerners, had long kept a gun in their home, even as they participated in the nonviolent movement in public. As inspiring as the meek and mild Parks of my childhood history lessons were, I find the fuller history of Parks' life to be much more fascinating and compelling. In the spirit of learning more about the fullness of black history, last year Dr. Theo Harris published a new book with the Unitarian Universalist Association's own Beacon Press titled A More Beautiful and Terrible History. The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. I'm going to restrain myself here from going into a long tirade about even just recent current events around uh, cynically misquoting Dr. King, for example, on MLK Day, you know, in ways that make me think about politicians, you know. That quote, I, I do not think it means what you think it means, right? Um, but uh, the general point is that how we write history, how we tell history, it, it really matters. And some of the influences behind Theo Harris's title are shown in the two epigraphs at the beginning of her book. The first is from the late uh, Uruguayan writer Eduardo Galeano, who wrote that history is a system of power. It's a system of power that's always deciding in the name of humanity who deserves to be remembered and who is being forgotten. We are much more than we are told. We are much more beautiful. The second epigraph is from the African-American writer and social critic James Baldwin, who said, American history is much longer, larger, more various, and more beautiful and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. I first began to grasp this perspective when I read um, Howard Zinn's The People's History to the United States. How many of you have read that book? It's it's quite good and important. I commend it to you. It tells America's story from the point of view and in the words of America's women, factory workers, African Americans, um, Native Americans, the working poor, and immigrant laborers. I can understand the appeal of telling romanticized versions of our history that make us feel good about ourselves, but the more I learn about the history of this country, the more it is clear to me that the story of white supremacy in the United States is not merely about the South, 
It's about the South. But it's not merely about the South. It's not only about back then. And it's not only about a few great leaders who made all the difference. Systemic racism has always been nationwide, is still with us today, and the successes of the civil rights movement are due to the work of Legion. First, um, I want to say a little bit more about each of those three points in turn. First, as a native son of South Carolina, I will confess that there is obviously, abundantly, shamefully a lot to say about the history of racism in the South. Stipulated. But as I learn more about the history of white supremacy in our country, there's also much to say about systemic racism in the North, in the West, uh, both then and now. Dr. King said it this way in 1965. He said, in my travels in the North, I am becoming increasingly disillusioned with the power structures there. They welcome me to their cities and shower praise on the heroism of Southern Negroes. But then, when the issues were joined concerning local conditions in the North, the language was polite, but the rejection was firm and unequivocal. So people in the North welcomed Dr. King and loved to hear the stories about how terrible the South is. But they didn't want to hear about the parallels in the North, and they weren't rude and to Dr. King's face like Bull Connor, but the no was a no all the same. Another stark example from earlier that same year in 65 was when, the Calif- when California's governor, Edmund Brown, was out of state when he first learned about the Watts uprisings happening. And he said on the record, quote, California is a state where there is no racial discrimination. Tell that to the, you know, to the people at the Watts riots then, tell that to a few decades later, Rodney King, who in an ironic twist of history was actually born just a few months prior to the Watts uprisings in April 2nd, 1965. Here's an example also of how we often misremember history today. Almost three years ago on March 2015, there was rightly a lot of focus on the 50th anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery march. But there was almost no commemoration a year earlier to mark the 50th anniversary of what was actually the largest single civil rights um, protest of that decade. And that protest was not in the South. On February 3rd, 1964, nearly half a million students and teachers stayed out of school to challenge um, New York City's Board of Ed's refusal to make a plan for comprehensive desegregation. I suspect that part of why the 50th anniversary of that protest was not celebrated is that to this day, New York City's Board of Ed has not made a comprehensive desegregation of that city's schools. Uh, And that's also true of many other school districts across this country. The difference was framed as the South has this reprehensible, what lawyers call de jure segregation, segregation mandated by law, and that's reprehensible and we need to get rid of that. But the North, we just have de facto racial segregation. It's not mandated, it's just how it is. Not by intention or design, but actually, yes, yes it is, and how houses were sold, how zoning was done. And strenuous efforts were made to have the enforcement of the Supreme Court's 1954 decision in Brown versus the Board of Education apply only to striking down segregation by law without there being any implications for proactively assigning students to public schools in order to overcome racial imbalances, because that would impact the North as well. 
The failure here is only going halfway. There's an improvement of moving from what I call conscious aspirational white supremacy, right, the KKK and things like that, which was we saw in the South, to rejecting personal prejudice and explicitly striking down racist laws like Jim Crow. But if you stop there, what ends up happening is that the personal prejudice may stop more or less, but the system stays in place, and it's more insidious. So um, if you don't consciously dismantle systems of oppression, they tend to unconsciously perpetuate themselves. So schools continue to be, for the most part, segregated, in fact, even if segregation is no longer the law of the land. That's why the language of our UU8 principle calls us to consciously and accountably dismantle racism and other systemic oppressions. And it's precisely at this point that aspirations to be colorblind get in our way. You know, I don't notice these things. I'm colorblind. I don't notice that the schools that have the greatest percentage of white people are nicer and the schools that as the percentage of children of color increases, it gets, you know, I don't notice that because I'm colorblind, right? That's where that that fails us about, to be honest, about the reality of the facts of systemic oppression and racism in our present. This dynamic is related to the second point I wanted to be sure to highlight, and that is that too often our histories of social justice are told in the passive voice. I invite you to to notice this in the future if you don't already. For anyone having bad flashbacks to English grammar, uh, stick with me for a second. Here's what I mean. Too often we're told that leaders get assassinated, that patrons are refused service, that women are ejected from public transportation. So the objects of racism are many, but the subjects are few. Uh, In removing the instigators, the historians remove the agency and in the final reckoning, the responsibility. The problem is not only the so-called southern redneck, who is a conscious aspirational racist, restraining myself from talking about Virginia right now, um, uh, and the governor, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Virginia governor and you will will see. Uh, But also the so-called moderate who politely or silently refuses to support proactive dismantling of systems of oppression. As Dr. King wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail, which is always worth revisiting, he said the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klan. It is the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice. He said, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Today, these same dynamics are often at play in criticisms of the Black Lives Matter movement, sometimes even ironically using Dr. King to criticize the leaders of that movement today. I invite you to consider that if you're using Dr. King to criticize Black Lives Matter, you might be doing something wrong. Uh, Or even using the exact words that the white moderates said to King to criticize Black Lives Matter, saying, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. I'm of course not saying that either the movement for black lives or other social movements are above criticism, but I am inviting you to notice the ways that resistance to social change can insidiously repeat itself if we're not cautious and self-aware. As the saying goes, history rarely exactly repeats itself, but it tends to rhyme. 
The third and final point I wanted to highlight is the problems with the so-called great man version of history that focuses almost exclusively on male leaders to the exclusion of the masses of people and women in particular that often make uh, that leadership possible. Among many examples, I'll focus for now on Coretta Scott King, who died 13 years ago this past Wednesday. She used to say, I always seem to be made to sound like the attachment to a vacuum cleaner. The wife of Martin, the widow of Martin, which she quickly added, all of which I am proud to be, but I'm much more than all those things, more than a label. Indeed, she was. When she and Martin first met, she was more politically active than he was. And I've always loved that it was Coretta who rightly insisted on, we're going to say the same wedding vows. Mine aren't going to say to obey you differently than yours. She was always a significant force during the Montgomery bus boycott. Coretta was often the one who would answer their increasingly frequently ringing phone. And when they began to again receive increasingly common hate calls during the night, she took to saying, you know, my husband's asleep. He asked me to write down the name and number of anyone who called to threaten his life so we could receive the call and uh, return the call and receive the threat in the morning when he wakes up and is fresh. As the movement continued, she spoke up earlier and more forcefully against American involvement in Vietnam than her husband. To give one specific example, late in 1965, when Dr. King felt he needed to back out of an address to to a Washington, D.C. peace rally, remember it wasn't until three years later in 68 that he gave that famous Riverside address. She kept her commitment to speak. Following her appearance, a reporter asked her, Was it your husband that educated you on these issues? And he quickly said, oh no, she educated me. Less than a month after a white supremacist assassinated Dr. King, Coretta Scott King stood on the balcony where he was shot at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis and shared her dream where not some but all of God's children have food. We're not some but all of God's children have decent housing. We're not some but all of God's children have an annual guaranteed income. She went on to be active in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, the protest against the Second um, Iraq War, and in the struggle for LGBT rights, in particular the struggle for marriage equality. And it was profoundly important to have Coretta Scott King come out publicly in support of same-sex marriage rights. There's so much more to say, but I hope uh, I've given you some further insights into the tools we need to move from the histories we have often received to the histories we need to build the world we dream about, to turn those dreams into deeds. Earlier, I shared the wisdom of Maya Angelou that when you know better, do better. Exactly. And although I don't think that we or I will ever be perfect in doing better. Remember, you are saved from perfection, right? You're not going to get there. So just start from that kind of looser, kinder, more compassionate starting point. But I do think we're moving in the right direction. I was honored to be invited recently to the annual meeting of the African American Resources, Culture, Heritage Society of Frederick County, where both myself and Lynn Wagner, one of the co-chairs of the UCF Dismantling Racism team, had the opportunity to accept on your behalf a certificate Certificate of Appreciation from Arch to UCF. I think, yeah, thank you so much. She's on it. Uh, uh, it says, in recognition of your exceptional support given to the Arch Society, uh, to the Arch Society, your assistance has been valuable to our mission to identify, collect, 
preserve, exhibit, and disseminate the history and culture of African Americans in Frederick County. We'll hang this in 113. Absolutely. But when you see it, let it be a reminder of what we're doing is working uh, in becoming known outside these walls for the work of racial justice. So from Arch to serving meals each month at Asbury United Methodist, one of the oldest African-American churches in Frederick with roots dating back to 1818 to the partnerships we've had with the local NAACP to other examples, we are increasingly becoming known outside these walls for our work for justice in general, for racial justice in particular. But be assured that just as we're becoming known for specific actions, we will become unknown if we don't continue for the long haul. So may we continue our commitment to know better and do better, and I'm grateful to be with you on that journey.